This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Lauren Roche. Lauren has taken part in numerous psychological and physiological studies about how meditation affects human beings, and he's been practicing meditation himself since the age of 18. Lauren has written several popular books on meditation and forthcoming from Sounds True, a book on the Radiance Sutras. With Sounds True, Lauren has released the audio learning program Meditation for Yoga Lovers, which invites listeners to leap into a meditation practice that's unique to them and welcomes everyone to the beautiful art of inner connection with their own essence and life itself. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lauren and I spoke about the posture of welcoming all experience. We also talked about how we can let the body teach the mind. Lauren also talked about the radical way that he looks at desire and the necessity for taking a very individual approach to the practice of meditation. Here's my conversation with Lauren Roche. Lauren, I want to begin with asking you to comment on a statement from your work that really got my attention, and at first I thought it was pretty outrageous, but I've kind of warmed up to it. Here's the statement. Yoga teachers are the future of meditation in America. <laughs> yeah, well, I really felt that is true for the last 15 years, but I have run into a lot of resistance. <laughs> There's a lot of pushback on the intellectual plane. Uh-huh. Tell me about that. Well, like the Buddhists have their whole thing going. There's um, a lot of skillful Buddhist teachers that have been going full blast for a long time. And talk about many voices. There's a, a huge diversity of cultures that have sent their emissaries here to the West. You know, the, the Japanese Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Cambodian Buddhism, Vietnamese Buddhism, with each with their own nuance. Korean Buddhism, each with their their own flavor, their own style of cooking. And so I thought that because yoga teachers and body workers would be coming in through the body, 
that they would have a more embodied approach to meditation. Um, that they would be set up to be able to get it and transmit it. Um, it's there's more challenges than I thought because the the approach to meditation that's w- widely available in yoga is so different than what I teach that I I have we have to spend a lot of time unbrainwashing people. So talk to me a little bit about how your approach is different than what you see happening within the yoga community as a whole, your approach to meditation. How is it different? Well, I embrace the waves of the mind, the waveforms. For people who have jobs and dogs and families, rhythm is where it's at. We, we don't flatten our rhythm. These pauses or interludes happen spontaneously when when we've tended to things. In our inner world, if we try to impose silence or detachment, it just breaks things. It just creates a suppressive atmosphere. And um, there's so much repetition of this uh, idea in the world that you're supposed to blank your mind, that you're supposed to go into meditation and your mind becomes blank. Whereas in what works in the people that I know, not just me, but the people that I know get it, is the approach more meditation is more like house cleaning and taking care of your home. Like you come home, you know, the dog's barking, and the dog wants to go for a walk. You know, the dog wants to be fed maybe and go for the walk and have water and go for a walk. People need to be tended to. Um, you might need to clean something up. You might need to sort, pay some bills. And then after doing all this work, your house feels clean. Well, in meditation, you often need to do a lot of house cleaning. And it's after meditation that you feel peace of mind and, you, and your mind is clear. If you impose that clarity during meditation, I, for most people it doesn't work very well. Okay, so let me see if I can follow you a little more clearly here. The metaphor of house cleaning, what does that mean when we sit down to meditate? What kind of house cleaning are we doing? It's kind of one damn thing after another comes to mind. Everything, as soon as we begin to relax, everything we're tense about comes flooding into our awareness. And anything unfinished comes to the surface to be felt. So I, I think Buddhists get this, are in a position to get this more than um, the the idea of yoga that's being promoted. So what I hear you saying is that within the yoga studios of America, that your sense is that meditation is being taught in a way such that you're supposed to silence the thinking mind. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's what that's what's being taught to to um, in many cases, and that's what students expect. Whether you, no matter what you teach, students have an expectation that they're supposed to silence their mind. I'm not sure exactly who told them, but it's as if written in stone, somewhere in a tablet inside of everyone's head.
And so how would you say your approach differs in terms of how to work specifically with the thoughts that come up when we rest and we're with ourselves? What's your approach? Well, it's instinctive that you welcome every single impulse that arises in you. And that inside of all these impulses is life taking care of life. So if you sit to meditate and you suddenly remember, oh my God, it's my mom's birthday tomorrow and I didn't get her a present, or I forgot to call Sue back, just welcome that impulse. Even though it might be painful, you want to welcome everything that you've forgotten and then welcome the rhythm for for people with jobs and, and families and people that they love. Meditation is often a very quick rhythm, although rest for 20 seconds and then think about the outer world for 20 seconds or a minute and all of the chores that haven't been done and then they'll rest for 20 seconds and then they'll think of a few more chores and they'll rest for maybe 30 seconds they'll think of a few more chores and they'll rest for maybe 45 seconds so there's this quick fluctuation this is what people normally experience if they do any kind of meditation that's close at all to their natural meditative state. And if you just follow this, it works beautifully. You know, it's, it's completely unpredictable. There's no, it doesn't feel like meditation. But afterwards, afterwards people feel like they have meditated. They feel more relaxed and alert and their mind's clearer. So, Lauren, do I hear you saying that you don't recommend people sit on a cushion for 20, 30, 40 minutes an hour a day, morning and night? Do you not recommend that? No, I don't. No, I think there's a lot of things wrong with it. It's a, it's a beautiful experience if you have the body and the training to be there. And 40 minutes is a good rhythm for you. But sitting on a pillow isn't good for a lot of people's backs or knees like a sofa or a chair, is good for some people. Other people can ha- are great on the pillow, but it's very individual. And so that, that archetype that you're sitting cross-legged on the floor on a pillow with no back support, there's, there's only some, a certain percentage of people for whom that's really healthy. And you, you'll know you're that person if you feel totally comfortable and your legs don't go numb, and your knees don't hurt. Okay, so let's say we're the type of person who's more comfortable sitting in a chair or sitting on the couch. Mm -hmm. Still this idea of setting aside a practice period that's not the same as 30 seconds in, do something, another 30 seconds, but an actual period of practice. Are you saying that that's not consonant with your approach? No, it is. I'm... I love for everybody to have a good half an hour meditation in the morning and evening. But there's a set of skills people need to um, have going in. Like if you, if you would, let's just consider what goes through people's awareness all day long. Like people who, those of us who aren't monks or nuns, 
have really complicated lives. I mean, we tend to other people most of the, most every minute from the time we wake up in the morning until we fall asleep. So we're continually moving in sequence through feeding ourselves, getting ready for work, bathing, dressing appropriately, lining up our to-do list, greeting people, you know, each greeting each person in our life appropriately for who they are. You know, the lover, the dog, the kids, the friends, you know, business partners, lining up this sequence of things to do and making sure that we are rested enough and fed enough and coherent to carry off all these chores. And then there's a limited amount of time in which to do all this. When we sit down to meditate, say, in the morning, before the day, or in the evening, it's not like our intelligence is going to stop. All these intelligent impulses of life, greeting, lining up the chores, vamping out new territories, establishing relationships with people, it's not like this stops. So when we're meditating, all of this intelligence is streaming through us continuously. And we need to welcome every bit of it and let it unfold. And if we deny any of it, then our meditation becomes a way of installing deeper denial into us. So you can you can tell if you do a long interview with somebody who's been meditating for a couple of years, you'll get the impression that either they're accepting their impulses and they're thriving, or you, if they're denying part of themselves, then you'll see where they're practicing denial and actually strengthening their denial system. So the skills meditators need are mainly the skills of embracing life in all of its complexity, embracing anger, sexuality, um, regret, passions, peace, the startling emergence of what feels like enlightenment impulses or higher perspective, things that feel like depression, sinking down, um, fatigue, excitement, um, craving for freedom, craving to be held. All of these opposites stream through us continuously. And to, to have a healthy meditation practice, we need to welcome it all. Because it's just life at play. Just because we're meditating doesn't mean that somehow we have to edit life and keep it under control. We actually rather want to welcome all of the impulses during meditation that we don't get to welcome during the day because we're busy, because we can't tell people in a meeting just to shut up. <laughs> we shut up. <laughs> we get to the point where you go, <laughs> where you go away. We can't tell people everything we have to, we feel all day long. But when we meditate, we'll feel all of that. It'll all come flooding up if we're, if we're at ease in meditation. So it's, it's a, meditators have to deal with a lot. I want to understand more what you mean by welcoming, because you're, you're using mm-hmm. that word, and I, I understand all of these different things that come up that we haven't yet felt into 
and fully experienced from our day, and I get that, but what is this posture that you are referring to welcoming? Good promises. Well, there's, it, we can think of it as embracing. We can, we can think of this welcoming as a process where you allow an impulse, which is a sparkle of energy. Say, it's, say you felt lust for somebody during the day. That's not your primary relationship. So then, in the meditative space, what's so beautiful is that you can let any impulse, like, or I don't like that person, or mm, I love that person, or hmm, what do they say? It, the impulses come up into the space of meditation. And that little package of energy, which could be regret, lust, anger, grief, happiness, it unfolds itself, and the prana, your own life force, that's to some extent trapped in that package, it, it gets to pop and be diffused. And then you have your energy back. It's not in that form anymore. Like say you were walking down the street and you saw a beautiful person, you felt, oh, you felt a surge of lust, and you didn't know what to do with that little spark that's flowing through you. And then you're meditating and you feel it what will tend to happen if you allow it is you'll, you'll relive that experience. Maybe feel turned on. The, this electricity will then tend to spark and fill your whole body like a shower of diffuse erotic energy. And then you forget the person. You forget this concrete situation, and you're just left there sparkling like feeling refreshed. And the energy is mine. In other words, I'm happy to be alive. I'm glad to be alive. That's what tends to happen naturally when people are meditating. And they just accept what's arising. Okay, so what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me, welcoming all of experience in the practice of sitting. I'm still a bit confused. I don't really know what's going on in yoga studios in America today. And so it sounds like what's going on in your experience is that meditation's being introduced in a more repressive way. Can you explain that to me? How would they deal, a yoga teacher who's introducing people to meditation, if lust arose? Yeah, well, there's... um whether it's what the teachers are teaching or just the what the students are hearing, there's a sense that you're supposed to block out thoughts. In the, um, the Yoga Sutras, by Patanjali, begins with this statement that yoga is the suppression of the waveforms of the mind, this... this um, Nirodha is used, this word Nirodha, which means, uh, it's usually translated as suppression. So that's what everybody's thinking. I gotcha. Do you think that there could be a problem in translation here? Well, Nirodha, it, there could be a problem in translation, but Nirodha is pretty... Um, it's a pretty specific word. 
the, the dictionary definition of nerodha is confinement, locking up, imprisonment, investment, siege, enclosing, covering up, restraint, check, control, suppression, destruction, disappointment, frustration of hope, and a particular process to which minerals and quicksilver are subjected, hurting, injuring. That's the dictionary definition of Nerodha. So that's the that's in the second line of the Yoga Sutras, and, and people are industriously trying to impose that on themselves. So that's a big thought form in in yoga and um so when I'm working with people who are in yoga studios or taking yoga, they have to deal with that. So I have to say, are you willing to consider another style? Can you let there be different styles of approach to meditation? And don't impose the rules from one style on another style. Let, let this approach be this approach. So it, it takes people often like an hour or two of just focusing on unlearning because that the tendency to judge is just so intense in people. There's a desperate craving for stillness, for silence, for the repose that comes from meditation. And um, when people fluctuate like between relaxation and excitement, they'll tend to judge themselves really harshly. So, you know, the, people are wanting to meditate. I mean, it's amazing, the longing. The people even feel guilty for not meditating. But the tendency to judge oneself and feel ashamed of having a busy mind, it's really deep. I work with it every day. So I think I understand this emphasis that you're placing not on repressing our experience, not repressing anything in our experience, but instead embracing it. You have a wonderful quote here that I I quite like, and I'd love to bring it forward in our conversation. All of the practices of meditation amount to cultivating what we do naturally when we are in love. And what I'm curious about is this idea of being in love with prana, what that means to you. Mm-hmm. Well, being in love is probably the most interesting and the most challenging thing <laughs> that we do because we're stretched in every way. I mean, our attention is stretched, our capacity to pay attention, the the one that we're in love with, that person, that dog. For some people, it's mountain climbing, a violin. But that love calls us. We're, we're called to pay attention. And we pay attention, we abide through ordeals. You know, if it's a person and they have the flu, or they're harassed, or they lose their job, or they go through a change, 
they have a toothache. We pay attention. We stay up all night with them. We'll, that happens once in a while, but day in and day out, we spend time with that other being, with that which we're in love with. And love calls forth the best in us. And when we meditate, it's our own impulse towards freedom, which it seems to me is one of the strongest impulses in a human being, is this mukta, this impulse towards freedom, takes over and we're carried by it into the vast mystery of what it means to exist. It's love carries us into the unknown. In all the techniques, there's these fantastic techniques in yoga and in Buddhism and Sufism and Taoism. They, they're skills that serve love. We're engaging with life itself. Meditation practices of any kind that, that suit our nature help us to melt into the embrace of life itself. And we inhabit these bodies. We don't know how we got here. We didn't create these bodies by any conscious design. We, we find ourselves breathing and our hearts beating. And on millions of levels, life is repairing us and keeping us sustained continuously. And it, when we pay attention, it feels like love. It feels like the body is made out of love. And for however long we get to be here, a few, a few more seconds or a few minutes, or a few decades, it feels like a miracle that we get to be here and witness through all of these rhythms. The body is a collection of, of billions of little rhythms. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Lauren, the subtitle 
of your new program with Sounds True is let your body teach your mind. So how, in your view, do we let our body, this body that perhaps we can feel as love, teach us? How do we let it be the lead here? Well, the body's rhythm, like if we're just sitting there, say if we just sit down and close our eyes on a cross-legged on the floor or on a sofa or in a chair with their feet on the ground, say it's five or six o'clock, and we just take a breath, close our eyes, and notice what we're experiencing. There's going to be a sense of fatigue usually, like a buzz of fatigue. And if we accept that buzz, it'll tend to turn into a mantra. So it's a buzz of fatigue. It'll tend to turn into something that we can follow. Because fatigue is actually ecstatic. There's, there's nothing as sweet as lying down when you're exhausted and Oh, oh my God, I'm so tired. There's this sinking. So, accepting the fatigue, we sink down into the chair, and maybe we fall asleep for a few seconds or a minute. Just, oh my God, I'm so tired. What a day. Whoa. And that whole downward motion just pulls us down into the embrace of gravity. It's a great it's a great tool for entering meditation. I mean, if you've, if you've had a day and you've really done your thing, whatever it is, you know, loving people, doing chores, that fatigue that you feel is the perfect preparation for meditation because it's, it's the world's greatest wine. I mean, it's, it's the stuff of everyday life. All of the people that you talk to, the chores that you did, the work that you did, whatever your work is, whether you're planting trees or um, managing people or or writing stuff or you know making sales, all of that contact is that your piece of the world that you're attending to, and the exhaustion that you feel is rich stuff. It the exhaustion that you feel makes you want to meditate. And when you know how to meditate, it's the there's nothing better. You know, the because meditation lets you rest more deeply than sleep and rejuvenate. So the the fatigue of the day creates an incredible craving to meditate in order to renew yourself. And so say that you want to go home from work you give yourself an hour, and then you want to go out dancing or you want to go meet friends for dinner. Well, then you've got a time boundary. So you want to do something with your body after meditation. like You want to spend time with somebody you love and be awake rather than a wreck. So that creates a demand that you feel in your body, like, I want to be renewed. I want to release the fatigue of the day and get recharged, clear my awareness, and be able to, say at 7 o'clock, go for a walk with my best friend and feel great. So that demand 
is another bodily demand. And the space of meditation just loves that. And you say to yourself, meditation, do your thing. You know, I'm going to give you 40 minutes, and I want to emerge renewed, refreshed, full of energy, as if I just came back from vacation. I think that's a great demand, in a sense, to put on the space of meditation. So say you spent the first few minutes just feeling into your fatigue. Then you'll feel all the energies in your body that you didn't get to live out. Like, I want a vacation. I want to have more sex. I want to eat different food than this boring health food I've been eating. I want to go see a movie. I want to go hiking. I want to listen to music. You get all these cravings. And just being on vacation with your fantasies is educational and refreshing. Some of them you can live out, and some of them, they just light you up from the inside. And when you when you let the fatigue carry you down into your body, where you're just you're just a hum of quivering flesh, having worked all day, all the thoughts that flow through you are you realize that. This is parts of my body letting go of any tension that I've been holding, any sense that I was on guard against. And any thought you think is just lighting up different nerves in your body, no matter what it is. If you're thinking of your to-do list, like most people that I know have long to-do lists, and when they meditate, they think of their to-do list, and they'll spend long minutes where they're sorting through the to-do list. Well, what's going on on a body level is that your body's rehearsing doing your to-do list and staying relaxed in motion. So all of that stuff is going to go on continuously. And for a person with a rich life, this daydreaming, planning, the to-do list, fatigue in reviewing stuff that you're afraid of is almost half or more of everybody's meditation. Lauren, I think the one thing you said that confused me is that you could put this demand on this period of meditation that at the end of 40 minutes I'm going to feel renewed. What if at the end of 40 minutes you realize how exhausted you are and you want to go to bed? That happens sometimes. And How can you put a demand on your meditation practice period? That seems to be contrary to the type of spirit you're describing here of embracing whatever's happening. Well, those are the constraints that we're all dancing in, you know, and, and, and the, um, could love is demanding. Like if people who have babies, oh my God, what they do to show up for their kids, it floors me. Because no matter how they feel, they have to show up. There's got to be breakfast in the morning. They can't sleep in. They've got to get the kids to school. They've got to go to work themselves. They've got to leave work and pick up. So that's a demand. Love and, and work demand stuff from us. And I found that if I'm really exhausted um, and I have to do something, my body knows that and it tunes me up. 
so that I can I can function. But those times, like you're saying, if we we want to go out for dinner, but after meditating, we realize, oh my God, I really am exhausted. That's really really valuable too, because if we have the choice, then we can cancel some things, and it'll it'll save us from getting sick sometimes. Like we learn, meditators learn to read those signals from the body. It sounds to me, Lauren, like you're offering a different approach to working with what I would call desire than maybe people are used to. One idea would be that your desires are what get you into trouble, your desires are what you should release and become detached from. It sounds to me that you're looking at desire in a pretty radically different way. I wonder if you can comment on that. Yeah, desire is the spice of life. And we may only be able to live out 1% of our desires, but we sure want to entertain them during meditation when they come and go. Yeah. Like over time, with with people who really have a, a consistent practice, say they meditate 40 minutes morning and evening, if they've learned in meditation to suppress desire, you're, you'll see it in them after a couple of years. There'll be a flat, an emotional flatness. And then after maybe three to five years, you'll see them developing health problems. And look, like, why has that person got a health problem? They've been eating healthy and meditating. But they, they repress their vitality, their life force. Of course, we're not supposed to be editing when we meditate. I mean, it's, it's, it's unnatural. See, when we meditate, we're actually in there, kind of in the control room to a certain extent. So any ideas that we have propagate strongly. If we're holding this idea, because we read a book, that you're supposed to be detached, or you're supposed to, your inner life is supposed to be politically correct, or there's somebody watching me, so like there's a nun watching me, so I don't, I'm not supposed to sit down and meditate and feel totally turned on or feel totally enraged. After a while, we'll we'll learn to. do something repressive to those impulses. You'll you'll get a a kind of a a clear space. But it's different for meditators than for non meditators. For people who don't meditate, they're like not inside the control room. So they can have the thought of repression and it doesn't affect them as much. When you meditate it's more like you go into the kitchen or you go into the where the switches are and your attitudes will actually influence the setting on your internal software. That's, that's the way it seems to me. I'm just going by listening to meditators for 40 years and watching them evolve over the years. It just seems to me that people who actually have a meditation practice, they can't afford to entertain any anti-life attitudes. You, do, you just can't afford to be spiritually or politically correct in there. You want to just be wild and free inside of your meditation. And after meditation, it's completely different. You've got to be ethical. I like that, Lauren, and, and I appreciate what you're saying. You also emphasize this idea of the individuality of how to approach one's meditation. And I wonder if you can comment yeah. on that. Yeah. It's, 
we all need to find those weird little preferences that we have. You know, and it's, it's always like, you know, I want a lot of mustard on my hot dog, or I, I hate vinegar. You know, I like salad, but no vinegar, just oil, or I don't like salt, or I do like salt. It, these, I don't like that kind of music. We all have these preferences, and to medit to thrive in meditation, we need to find what our particular, unique, weird, eccentric little things are. The things that we, ah, that's just right. Ah, that's right. That, that's the way I like to be touched. Well, of course, often the way meditation's taught, it's taught more formulaic than that. Like, here's a set of instructions. Please follow these instructions. What kind of weird eccentricities are you talking about in the internal life of a meditator? Well, there's there's hundreds of little teeny skills that that are like the skills of, say, being with an animal. Like, animals just come up to us and they want to be petted and, and held, and babies want to be held, and we hold each other. But if, if let's look at the ways of holding. Like, say we're at work. Well, people shake hands now. Even women shake hands. And uh, in other parts of the world, people bow to each other. But in, in um, the Western world, people actually reach out and touch. You'll, you extend your right hand usually and there's an exact if you look at it and feel it there's it's half a second or tenth of a second or whatever it's some let's see what would it be maybe it's a second second and a half and a shake handshake and if you hold the person's hand even for an extra half and a second it feels clingy like what like giving me my hand back and when we hug it's even more amazing because we might hug for a second or two, depending on the person. And if we stay there for even a second too long when we hug somebody, it's like, whoa, what? Get back, back off. Or what's wrong? So that's holding in the outer physical world. And there's an exactitude when we meet other people where we'll, we'll, we welcome them, we say hi, we reach out, they reach out and touch us, we reach out and touch them, and we touch them in exactly the right way for that relationship. That's what we aim to do, is to move through our world, welcoming touch and giving touch. And in our inner world, you know, we're being touched by these energies flowing through us, because we have our whole body, and, and um, one of the things that I figured out how to get through to yoga teachers is that, I say that everything you think about is noise in your head, that's just your chakras talking to each other. Meditation is a space where the chakras can hang out and chat it up and, and line themselves up and saying, no, you go first, no, after you, no, after you, no. Or, and, and somebody, hey, I've been waiting you guys let me join up with you. Your chakras all want to join up together. And so let them talk. Well, we, we need to 
find ways to ride those impulses, give them space, encourage them, pet them, touch them, say it's okay. So there's all these little tiny skills for doing what we do with the animals, kind of gesturing, it's okay, come come here, let me pet you, let's go. And to feel at home in meditation. What I like is for people to feel at home in meditation, like really, really at home, safe, because that's a platform to be thrilled to be alive. Because what happens is if you're at home, then it sets the, the foundation so you can be scared by your own aliveness and what you're going to do next. Like, I'm going to fall in love, or I'm going to have kids, or I'm going to start a business, or I'm going to take a trip. Why would I want to be scared, Lauren, by my own aliveness instead of just excited by my own aliveness? Well, excited. Okay. We, want to be, we want to convert our fears into excitement. Definitely, you're right. But often when, when the thing that we're about to be excited by first comes up, it's often scary. Mm-hmm. And so we, we need a lot of homingness and safety in the body to tolerate all that, that excitement. Like, I think about half of meditation time for people who have a rich daily life is just converting fear back into excitement. Like in listening to people, that's what they're doing. It's converting little fears back into free-flowing life force. So when you talk about individuality, you're talking about the meditator being deeply within their own experience and trusting this flow of prana in their own life and kind of finding their own way, like with a home. Is that what you mean? Yeah. When I listen to people, everyone has things that they know already that are they're on the border of meditative experiences. Everyone knows one of one or more of the gateways into meditation. But like in a room full of yoga teachers, they'll say, "Well, what? When do you feel most glad to be alive?" And <laughs> this woman said the other day that she has two dogs, and they, when they're asleep on the sofa. She loves to watch them breathe. And she has the most amazing feeling of peace. And she hadn't ever told anybody about it because there's, you know, when is there time to talk about this? But she told the whole, whole group this experience that she has almost every day of watching the dogs breathe. And she looked enlightened when she was talking about it. She was glowing with the mystery of what she experiences because she loves the dog so much and just watching them be utterly at peace, breathing in that natural way dogs breathe. She goes into that state. It's her pranayama and she just had never told anybody. And, um, I love hearing these stories. I feel like when I'm hearing things like this, when I hear things like this every day, I feel like I've learned some great secret that I'm changed, like I'm, I'm improved. 
from having heard that story. Look, I, I am. It's like, how could I have gotten this far in life and not known that thing or not known how to say that thing? And so it's discovering these particular things that we love about life and letting that be part of our meditation. Like other people have amazing experiences with music. They had, they've had amazing transcendent experiences listening to just particular bands playing. And that's just, when I, when I spend time with someone and give them half an hour to tell me about it, like that's an initiation that they had. They, that's as good as it gets. Like they, they felt the presence of God in that piece of music. Now let's, let's figure out how to let your meditation feel that way so that when you meditate each day, even if you're just breathing or listening to silence, that you're, you're able to be totally there, like totally absorbed listening to the flow of breath or listening to silence as you were when you were listening to that incredible band. Okay, so I get what you're saying. This individuality has to do with letting ourselves really attune to and love what brings us deep rest and deep gratification and satisfaction and letting that be a very unique to us experience and trusting those moments and paying attention to those moments. Is that part of what you're pointing to? Yeah. Yeah. There's a unique signature to attention. When people are paying attention, like they're riveted, like they're really there. They're paying utter attention like we do when we're in love. It's always unique. And also, when anyone is doing it in meditation or in the garden, you can learn from them. Like when I'm sitting with people and I just say, well, what, tell me about what you love. Let's build your meditation practice to be, to feel like you being in love with life. Every moment, it feels like the most incredible privilege to be there, listening to this person talk about what it's like to love. It's, it's like, it's an honor to be in the presence And it's relatively simple to transfer what they know about love to an internal skill of meditation. Help me understand that, how you do that. Well, say there's these people that love gardens. Like, they have a mystical relationship with gardens. Like, they'll, they'll go out in the garden all the time. And... In a way, that is a meditation already. They're on their knees. You know, they're digging in the dirt. But say they want to have something that looks like a formal meditation practice. Well, we'll just have them just sit with their eyes open, maybe with something that they've brought in from the garden, and let themselves love it. Love that flower or that leaf, you know, or a bug or a piece of, a piece of dirt. And then if they 
want to do an eye closed meditation. We just continue. We pick some aspect of what they love and make a um, a mantra out of it. Or for some people, they can actually get how they're paying attention. Oh, I see. I'm paying attention when I'm in the garden. I'm paying attention in a certain way, and then I can. They can actually model that type of attention and then just pay attention to anything that comes up. Like garden people, people with a green thumb, they know that every plant needs a different thing. This plant needs sun, that plant needs water, that plant needs um, a container, that plant needs to be break out of the container. They have this sense of what each individual plant needs at each stage of its development. And so... I'll say, okay, just do that with your own prana flowing through your body. That same, that same skillful attentiveness. And they're good to go. Oh, I get it. I just pay attention to every part of myself. And since what do you need? You, you give it what it needs. And then you just move on to the next thing that comes up calling you for your attention. Is that, does that make sense? And then animal, some people deal with animals. And so it's the same thing. I'd be curious, Lauren, if you could give me an example from your own life of something that you really love and how that has become a quote-unquote meditation for you. Of something that I do? Yeah. Well, for me, I grew up surfing and being in the ocean every possible moment and um, every every time of day is completely different the ocean continuously changes so every time I enter the ocean I'm slightly scared it's it's a wake up because it's slightly terrifying because it's huge and vast and then when I get to be at home in the ocean, like it's thrilling. It's I'm at home, and I'm there's a th- electric thrill of being in my little body in this vastness that's continuously in motion. And um, there's diving under waves, like there's waves on the surface, and you dive under, and the waves let you usually they let you escape from the turbulence when you dive under. And that was really helpful in learning to meditate because when when I meditate, there's this vastness. I'm aware of the earth and the atmosphere all around me. I'm aware of the earth down below, the steady pull of this huge sphere that we're on. And the air, this huge ocean of air that we're in, and then this inconceivably huge amount of space around the earth. And um, it's all just like being in the ocean to me. Like that with that, the physical experience of surfing and swimming and body surfing and sailing helped me to 
accept and enjoy the interact with, interaction with nature that meditation invites me into. It being an ocean of space and the ocean of air and the ocean of gravity. So that's always been really helpful for me. I think if I were to summarize our conversation, I would say something like, for Lauren, meditation has a synonymous quality to loving life. Yeah. And it's, it's odd that it's sort of feel right now can feel like a minority view. <laughs> when, when I learned to meditate in 1968, this was the approach that I was taught in, in the, uh, the tradition of Kashmir Shaivism. But because, of course, it's like you have all these energies. The chakra metaphor is just one of the metaphors. So there's all these energies streaming through you. Every single impulse flowing through your body and is a gift. Accept it. Every thought you think, every feeling you feel, it's a song. You can listen to it as a song. You can see it as a color of light. You can feel it as an impulse of electricity. And let it feed you, let it entertain you, let it light you up. If you don't want to live it out, then just let it dissolve and absorb the energy. And the overall hum of everything you're thinking, that overall hum of all the millions of thoughts that you have ever thought, that's a form of own. That is a sacred hum of life, saying yes to life. Now, Lauren, I want to ask you a kind of strange and edgy question here towards the end of our conversation together, which is on your website where you teach meditation to yoga teachers, you have a statement. You ask people uh, not to use marijuana or psychoactive drugs for two weeks before they come and work with you for a training. And I was curious about this, why this is important to you. And I also notice in our conversation, listening intensely to you, I feel kind of trippy, if you will, just really tuning to you and to this flow here in this conversation, which makes this request that you're making of yoga teachers who come to study with you even more curious for me. Can you explain? Yeah, yeah. well, it's a, it's kind of a joke. Um, well, two things. One is that um, I think some people use meditation as, I mean, use marijuana as a kind of meditation. But I think but the uh, after effects of marijuana, it's, they see, it just seems to clog the subtle nerve, sensory pathways. Like, to do the kind of meditation that I like to invite people into, you, you need to be clear. It really helps to be clear and sober. Um, and, and the other thing is, is uh, I, I don't, do <laughs> don't do drugs. I mean, I, I don't have anything against them. But I didn't do drugs in the 60s, and, um, and I don't smoke pot. So I'm not afraid to let meditation feel kind of like a trippy and stoned. Like, 
the people, most of my friends <laughs> who are yoga teachers seem to smoke pot and do different drugs. And so when they're teaching, they're a little bit religious, like they're, they're being proper. Because they have a secret life. Their secret practice is to kind of do yoga as their day job. And then to have fun, they go and get stoned. Whereas for me, meditation is fun. I want meditation to be trippy and to fulfill the, that need for the psychedelic. So it's different. You know, I'm, I'm all one thing. You know, I'm not a different person. That I'm not, I don't want to meditate and then need to go get stoned in order to cut loose. I let meditation be um, just naturally psychedelic. Well, I think you're succeeding in being trippy, at least from my perspective here. Now, why, when I asked you about this comment on your website about people coming to train with you, why did you say it's kind of a joke? Oh, because um, in 1968, you know, I was at the University of California, and everybody else was taking multiple drugs. <laughs> Timothy Leary lived nearby. <laughs> and it turned out that in my first yoga class in 1968, I was sitting next to the main drug dealer on campus. <laughs> I won't say his name, because I, I call him every 10 years and thank him. <laughs> anyway, this guy Henry, <laughs> he decided to protect me from drugs that I shouldn't. And he put out the word, Lauren shouldn't take drugs. Nobody should sell drugs to Lauren. So... <laughs> I was running the Esalen at Irvine program at UC Irvine and having all these workshops and studying and teaching yoga and Tai Chi. And, and I would often go, God, I'd really like to try LSD. And the, these, his drug dealer team would talk me out of it. <laughs> and so um, I, don't think it was, I don't think it's my path. Most of my friends did huge amounts of drugs, and they seemed to be fine. But I don't think it would be good for me. You know, I, and then my roommate died from drug-related things, and um, there were lots of people back in the 60s who had terrible experiences with psychedelics. And, and, uh, but I had this enchanted relationship with the drug dealers, and so I didn't really do any of that. And so I, I'm, I don't have to try to be respectable. You know, I don't, um, I'm not like a priest or something where I, pr I act holy and then I go and do something else. This is, I'm one, I'm one person. It's like I, I learned to let meditation be that rich and entertaining. And I think everybody has access to this. People are naturally good at meditation. What we, the work to be done is to increase our skill level, increase the skill level of the teachers in leading people into their own particular meditation practice. And the, we need to upgrade the language of meditation because on the, it's, it's still it's still oriented towards the male monastic tradition rather than people who live in the world.
the whole the whole language and expectation set of meditation. Just speaking generically, which which is of course is a lie. There's a lot of brilliant work being done by meditation teachers of all of all traditions. Lauren, I just want to end with making sure that the listener has some of your best thinking in terms of here there's something in their life that they love and maybe it's a certain beverage that they like or somebody's face that they love. How can they find the type of richness and words that you use a lot in your work, wonder and delight and pleasure, three words that I noticed you use quite a lot in your work. How can Mm -hmm. that person find the wonder, delight, pleasure in that experience at its depth? What would you recommend? Well, it's a quest. It's do research on yourself and and notice and study, like, what is it that I'm built for? What thrills me? When do I feel glad to be alive? And then, like, there was, was it Rilke? Rilke, that poem on looking on an archaic statue of Apollo, it, he describes looking at this statue and saying, you've got to change your life. That's the end of the poem. You you look at this image of perfection, and you realize, I have to change my life. So notice what is it that you love so much that you want to be with it. And then notice, how do I need to change my life? How do I need to tune up? Do I need to stop drinking? Do I need to start walking more? Do I need to pay off all my bills? Do I need to get out of debt? Do I need to clean up the garage? Do I need to start being more honest? Because it's challenging. It's like getting married. You know, there's, there's things that you need to do to get ready to get married. Be willing to make those changes that love calls for you. And then find out how to spend more time being in the presence of what you love and be willing to wonder and search to find the techniques that work for you. Because the meditation, everybody is different. There's really, there's so many different techniques. Buddha said one day, monks, I've given you 84,000 different dharmas for all the different kind of people that there are. Be willing to experiment and explore and trust your instincts. Because when you find what works for you, you often know immediately it works that very same day. Lauren, I've really enjoyed yeah. talking to you. You are one unusual cat. <laughs> I am a cat. I've been talking with Lauren Roche with Sounds True. Lauren has created a new audio learning program called Meditation for yoga lovers. Let your body teach your mind. And forthcoming from Sounds True, a book on the Radiance Sutras. Lauren, thanks so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Tammy. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>